Center Podcast listeners. I'm Jeremy with you again for another week as we continue in this series over the summer uh, Center Conversations. We deal with various themes and topics that uh, we think would be of use and interest um, for uh, our Center community and uh, for this listenership. And then there's, of course, a lot of overlap there, but but also uh, folks who we don't see on a, on a weekly basis. Um, we hope that these uh, this content proves useful to you. So uh, for the first week of this series, we talked about fatherhood. Uh, we're now talking about um, ambition this week. Um, a few resources uh, that were used, um, probably won't be able to name them all, but we continue to uh, dip into uh, Smith's On the Road. Uh, there was a great piece um, called Literary Themes, uh, and it deals with the topic of ambition uh, that's easy to find online. So ambition is a tricky topic, um, and that's exactly why I think it's worth spending a bit of time on it in this series. Um, I think it's helpful for us to think through this topic as a community because our initial reactions to ambition vary markedly depending on um, our histories with it. Yeah, it's just it's something that actually is quite hard to define, hard to measure. However, when you come into close proximity with those who are plainly more or less or differently ambitious than you, uh, you can feel some of the tensions there. Whether your default positions concerning ambition are generally favorable or unfavorable likely depends on the degree to which ambition has been used to spur positive impact in the world or the degree to which it has been the catalyst of frustration or unhealth in your life. You know, it's curious to think through the evolution of the idea of ambition in literature, theology, and philosophy, and psychology. Um, across these disciplines, um, the ways in which uh, we're encouraged to frame this big topic, big topic of ambition, ambition varies quite a bit. And cer certainly we won't offer a full treatment here, but to touch on a few I big ideas pertaining to ambition. First is Plato and the tripartite analogy of the soul. Useful to reference Plato briefly, if anything, to see how public consciousness has changed on, on a topic like ambition. Plato identifies, interestingly, the individual as he uses this image of, uh, of the individual as the charioteer who drives the two horses of the soul, the noble horse on the one hand, the base horse on the other. So the noble horse um, includes reason and, and courage and honor. And the base horse uh, is, includes ambition. So uh, includes lust, it includes avarice, it includes anger. And this is interestingly echoed in, in Freud's famous Beyond the Pleasure Principle in his construction of the id. So we see ambition residing there in the id, and it has to be managed and maintained through the work of the ego and superego. So as we're, again, I mean, immediately jumping around from philosophy, um, from Greek philosophy into, um, you know, into psychology uh, with Freud, we just see ambition firmly planted in, in, the, in the negative category, in the, 
in the camp of the, the desires that have to be managed in our lived experience. There's at least one shift that is, is perhaps not the first shift that, that occurs uh, on the topic of ambition, but it's at least a notable one in Maslow's hierarchy in the 1940s. Here, ambition is seen less as something to be managed or transcended um, and considered within a and, and, and is instead considered within this need structure as something fundamental to what it is to be human. So um, not, quite a, not quite in direct opposition to other earlier ways of thinking about ambition, but rather it, it seems to frame ambition more as something that can be realized and, and even should be uh, satisfied. It's, a, it's an understandable, necessary feature of humanity, and it's not simply something to be the desire to be managed or squelched, but rather uh, something to be realized. Another shift, an interesting one, uh, which we've already talked about um, in, in, content prior to this, but is the way in which ambition is oriented or um, positioned within this larger ideology of the American dream. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, defining the American dream, the ideal that every citizen of the United States should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, through determination and initiative. And again, I won't unpack um, our critiques of the ways in which Christianity has been co-opted by the American dream uh, now. But um, it's curious to see the value of ambition, you know, not even even more so than in Maslow's hierarchy, um, the value of ambition present in the ideal experience of the citizen in the United States. And so there are certainly differences that we can observe in early philosophy, in early Greek philosophy, um, in Freud anyway, and probably other areas in, in the discipline of psychology, and what we end up with in the lived American experience where I think there is certainly, um, for the most part anyway, at the, at the popular level, an uncritical embrace of ambition. And I, I don't think it's unreasonable to see ambition as present, if not in precise language, in the spirit of the ideology of the American dream. Um, the literary perspective is, uh, I think, even more critical, far from flattering. It's, it's vast. It's impossible to treat fully uh, in, in this short talk. But the great literary minds who have dealt with ambition um, are, you know, offer um, nuanced but ongoing critique and concern about what ambition can do to a person, to um, a society. Um, so whether it's Dostoevsky, uh, just to hit on a few major um, literary minds that have dealt with this in serious ways, Dante even, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, as I said, Milton's Paradise Lost in the Fall of, of Satan Miller and Death of a Salesman. Think about Franzen's work. Um, you know, one of the great American novelists constantly, I mean, among many other big themes, the critique of what ambition can do uh, to the human soul. Think about Fitzgerald or Hemingway, Plath. We see, I mean, Steinbeck can't, we can't not think about Steinbeck uh, as we think about the ways in which um, unbridled ambition corrupts. And maybe, maybe as important as any, as I mentioned, is Shakespeare. Uh, I think that Shakespeare 
reflects the general attitude of the Elizabethan era as it pertains to ambition. Um, again, we, could, we don't really, this is not really the place to unpack that fully, but the Bard's play came to mind. So you have characters like Lady Macbeth herself who um, essentially offer these these prayers to dark spirits, um, praying that she becomes less human so that her ambition might um, coerce or compel her husband, join alongside the ambitions of her husband, Macbeth, and allow them to, to obtain the throne. Even better, though, in, in the play uh, is Malcolm. Uh, here's Malcolm. It is myself, I mean, in whom I know all the particulars of vice so grafted that when they when they shall be opened, Black Macbeth will seem as pure as snow, and the poor state esteem him as a lamb, being compared with my confineless harms, referring to Macbeth here, I grant him bloody. In other words, I, I grant that Macbeth is bloody. I grant that he's luxurious, avaricious, false, deceitful, sudden, malicious, smacking of every sin that has a name, but there's no bottom, none to my voluptuousness, says Malcolm. Your wives, your daughters, your matrons, and your maids could not fill up the cistern of my lust and my desire. All continent impediments would overbear that did oppose my will, but better Macbeth, better Macbeth than such a one terrain. Um, Malcolm is, is essentially saying as violent and as horrific as Macbeth is, how violent and horrific would he become to satisfy his ambitions, which while not aimed, while not, um, while, while they, in Malcolm's case, while they don't manifest themselves in the same way, it's still ambition at, at, at bottom, ambition and un, um, unchecked desire that is at the root of who he is. And he's saying that, that, that that ambition married with power, better Macbeth even than me to reign. Malcolm is in this in this way kind of a, a counterpoint to Macbeth himself. And the examples um, through Shakespeare are, are multitudinous. It's a major theme throughout all of Shakespeare's work. The literary examples continue. Uh, a very interesting one um, is Dostoevsky in the mouth of the Grand Inquisitor, saying that Christ is too ambitious, too perfect, too pure to be followed by a failed humanity. This ambition is 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 fascinating, and I, of course, I've recommended many, many times uh, the Brothers Karamazov. This ambition is something altogether different than uh, what, for my money, cuts to the core of the problem or the question around ambition. It would not be a discussion about ambition if we don't if we didn't address Steinbeck. Here's Steinbeck in East of Eden. I believe that there is one story in the world, and only one. Humans are caught, says Steinbeck, in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. There is no other story. A man, after he has brushed off the dust and chips of his life, will have left only the hard, clean questions was it good or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? Humans are caught in their lives and their thoughts and their hungers and ambitions. Do you see how different, whether we're re rewinding back to Plato, 
um, or, or I think even the much more interesting literary considerations of ambition? Do you see how different uh, even this kind of somewhat um, somewhat random uh, journey through our literary past and like touching on a few notes in psychology and philosophy, do you see how negative ambition is understood to be, how dangerous and problematic it's understood to be? Uh, Steinbeck reminds me of Augustine. Uh, and again, rec recommending um, Smith's work here, and this, this came from Smith, and all our strivings, such as those efforts that were then worrying me, in all our strivings, such as those efforts that were then worrying me, the goads of ambition impelled me to drag the burden of my unhappiness with me. And in dragging it to make it even worse, yet we had no goal other than to reach a carefree cheerfulness. The beggar, rather that beggar was all already there before us, and perhaps we would, we would never achieve it. Um, Augustine is talking about this interesting experience of, of having an ambition that drives him into, and it's not, it's arguably not entirely negative, but having an ambition that, that essentially drives him into environments where he is um, under more pressure. I think at this point he's giving a lecture or presenting a paper, something like that. And he sees a beggar who seems to have transcended the need to, um, to, have the have the successes that Augustine so desires and so like so desperately needs in all our in all our strivings such as those efforts that were then worrying me the goads of ambition impelled me to drag the burden of my unhappiness with me Augustine sees ambition as the vehicle by which unhappiness follows him and goes with him everywhere Steinbeck and East of Eden in their hungers and ambitions in their avarice and cruelty um, he's talking about this trap, this net of both good and evil uh, in which um, in which we, we live our lives. Please contrast that. Don't take my word for it. Go to go to uh, your local bookstore if one exists uh, for you. I mean, the, the couple that are left. Right. Or, or look at look at the bestsellers on Amazon. I you know, I don't know, but I would. I, I am very confident that um, self-help, for example, and this includes the um, equally disturbing genre, the Christian self-help uh, genre. I don't know what it's called. Inspirational, perhaps. Um, you know, take a look at that genre. See the ways in which um, ambition is spun and uncritically, um, unreflectively celebrated. And I, I again... Going back to those few opening comments I had, this is not a message, and I do think that it's a less insightful kind of talk or conversation when ambition is either just um, unflinchingly celebrated, lauded. Um, that's that's not terribly interesting. It's also not terribly interesting to just spend you know an hour critiquing ambition. It's it's clearly more complicated than that. But let's be clear um, where we're at in our moment um, in our culture at least in, you know, in American culture, um, and how we think about ambition now. I mean, take the very famous how to win friends and influence people, or uh, I don't even know, I, you know, some of these living forward, a proven plan to stop drifting, to get the life you want, grit, the power of passion and perseverance. Remember that when that was hugely popular. And, uh, I mean, 
well, anyway, whether it's, whether it's grit or money or drive, you know, understanding what motivates us so that we can be motivated more. I read that book, by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying these are like categorically unhelpful or bad or necessarily evil, but can we, can we at least understand that, um, that, that as, as followers of Jesus, who has a very different kind of ambition, one that positions him to go back to Dostoevsky, one that positions him on a cross and, and has him executed by the power structures of the world. If we are actually following Christ, surely our ambition must look different than gaining power, money, focus, and so on. What does the Bible then say about ambition? We've, we've taken a beat on, on literature, on psychology, on philosophy. What does the Bible say about ambition? Four times uh, we see the word in the New Testament. Um, it, it, it's e- even the concept itself, it's really only used a handful of times, usually negatively. Philippians 1.17. These verses talk about proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Uh, the, qualifi- the qualifier in English is built into the one Greek word, which indicates there might be a sort of ambition that is potentially not selfish. In other words, the Bible, uh, while negatively framing ambition, is clearly not trying to um, offer this uh, final word on all ambition. Philippians chapter 2 contrasts selfish ambition against humility. So we see that in some ways those intuitions, those those promptings that you have to live a life that is controlled, that is moderate, moderate, that is humble, that in some ways that stands against this, this um, um, uh, selfish ambition that is criticized in the Bible. So we have kind of two dispositions at odds there, humility against ambition. But you also see, you see the same Greek word sitting behind uh, Romans 2, 2 Corinthians 12, Galatians 5. Here's Romans 2, 8 as an example. But for, for those who are self-seeking, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There's a, this idea of self-seeking, right? Um, self-aggrandizement, building up self, building up your wealth, your success. We see positive representations of this concept uh, however, in the in the Bible as well, uh, with it, with this other Greek word that shows up in the New Testament. Here's Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 20. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Okay, so we don't have a categorical like critique of ambition throughout the Bible. It's what what is your ambition aimed toward? Um, you know what what does your what does your ambition orient itself around? What is it absorbed with? Uh, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. First Thessalonians chapter four, um, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. There's, you can have this ambition aimed toward the good, aimed toward um, restraint. There's actually, it takes ambition to do that, by the way. Uh, it's just a different sort of ambition than um, than what we see critiqued in so much of um, literature and, and in other passages in scripture as well. So let me offer a few observations. This is a, um, just a kind of brief, brief talk this week on ambition. So we'll, we'll uh, offer three observations by, uh, by way of concluding. First, when ambition results in or is a product of anxiety, 
you're probably dealing with an idol. So much can be said about this, uh, but ambition should be aimed at bringing order and peace, not about satisfying personal appetite. Our ambitions will tell us much about what, who we are, really, and, and, and what we want. They'll reveal idols to us. The degree to which, if you're self-reflective and, and critical to some degree, the degree to which you're able to, to identify where your ambitions are aimed will tell you the ways in which um, your ambitions are seeking to satisfy a personal kind of appetite or the desires that we see so much skepticism around in literature and, and philosophy. Uh, so ambition aimed correctly will bring order and peace. And this is not to say, uh, to elaborate on order and peace for a moment, um, this is not to say that um, you know that your your ambition is aimed rightly when you are kind of floating through life in this zen-like state. Uh, order and peace and the, the engine of ambition often will disrupt current systems. You might find that your colleagues, you might find that the people that you work for or that work for you, you might find that some of the people in your, in your faith community are upset with you or frustrated with you because you are disrupting things. So order and peace is good, uh, but it needs to be the order and peace we see exemplified in the way in which Christ um, lives his life. Um, the order and peace we see exemplified in the values and the ethical systems that, that Christ is, is operating within and, and actually guiding us into. Um, and that, that often is very, very disruptive. I mean, I go back to the Dostoevsky quote, the ambition of Christ, um, actually puts him on a cross, right? The ambition of Christ puts him at odds with all of the systems that determined who the winners and losers were. And we might expect that our ambition, if it looks at all like, um, the ambition of Christ, we might expect it to bring quite a bit of pain and suffering, not just, not just ease. So when I'm talking about order and peace, I'm not talking about like ease. Um, the ambition that, 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 that is the work of, of the Christian is aimed at ordering and reordering um, many things that are absolutely out of, out of, um, out of order. It's aimed at, at restoring a lot of, a lot of, sinful things in the world and, um, and celebrating grace and mercy and wholeness. And, and that's, there's just a lot of work that is required there. And ambition can be an engine that drives that work. Um, and that kind of work, in fact, reduces anxiety. And why does it reduce anxiety? It reduces anxiety because it, it allows us to be connected with and tuned in to the work of the spirit of God in the world. And that always is going to, um, bring a sense of reliance on, uh, on the Trinity. Uh, when your ambition is, uh, aimed at personal appetite, uh, your anxiety will increase because even as you have more, you are at once and constantly aware that what you have might be lost, what you have might be taken. And so in that way, even as you might begin to be or look more and more successful, uh, anxiety and appetite grows. Think back to, to the Malcolm quote I referenced. So that's number one. When ambition results in or is a product of anxiety, you're probably dealing with an idol. Now, now we have the engine of ambition aimed in, a, in an unhealthy direction. Number two, when ambition is about you asserting control over the other, 
you're probably dealing with an idol. When ambition is about you asserting control over the other, you're probably dealing with an idol. And I want to make a few comments here so that I'm not misunderstood. First, I'm intrigued by a dialectic within the church concerning ambition and power, and I think it's worth unpacking uh, for a moment. So first, on the, on the one hand, strands or factions within the church are reacting to a serious and, and grievous evil, which I've, I've long critiqued. This is to say a church that strives for certain outcomes in the spheres of politics and social struggles and seems unconcerned with its methods. This is absolutely critical. Uh, this is an unholy acquisition of power, and it's oriented around an ambition that you see in the church where the church asserts control over the other. I, I, again, to underscore this, this is a church that strives for certain outcomes in the spheres of politics and in social struggles, and they seem unconcerned with their methods. This can be evaluated in, in, in very kind of local and petty ways, I think, right? like ranging from Xbox giveaways to prosperity gospel to excess and spectacle. And, and, and it is a misunderstanding to presume this is a critique of just large churches or something. Churches of all sizes um, have the opportunity to engage in or avoid methodologies that assert or attempt to manipulate others while at once claiming their ambition is Christ-oriented. A Christ-oriented ambition considers not only outcome, but methodology. Again, a Christ-oriented ambition considers not only outcomes, but methodologies. But, but it's not only local. It's not only small like that. And I, some would say that those aren't small, those kinds of issues, the issues of excess and spectacle and largesse. It's not, it's not only local or small in that way. It's also national and societal. Think about these, the, the absolutely disturbing and, and unholy political alliances that we see. Think about Christofascism, uh, which we've talked about before, a portrait of Christianity to veil other ideologies particularly totalitarianism. I mean, we should, and it's, it's the work of Christ. We should have an ambition. We should have an ambition to, to identify and eradicate the disturbing and disgusting use of Christianity as a mask for other ideologies. I think a serious consideration of the mechanism of ambition has to alert us to this. Over the last year or two, I've not been terribly surprised by how many within Christianity have balked at this and been absorbed by it. Speaking particularly of Christofascism, I've been surprised that people think, that, but, but I have been surprised um, that people think this problem is somehow new, as if they're the first this is as if they're the first people to ever identify the, the problem of, of Christianity um, being hijacked to bring other ideological values onto the table, to popularize them, to manipulate, to coerce. And in fact, it should be described as a wicked or a deep problem. That's exactly what it is. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, again, just 
Um, I think that the those I know within Christianity who are asking themselves, should we abandon Christianity because they see it um, being used to shield other nefarious values or aims are exactly misdiagnosing the problem. That's the very reason one continues the good work of Christ within the community. It, it, but it's again, it's 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 this deep problem that has been going on uh, throughout all of Christian history. And of course, I should add that this problem is much broader. It can't be diagnosed only through the lens of of even something as broad as ambition. But it's worth thinking about in that way. So. To those of you who are both Christians and you would even identify as ambitious, it is essential to think about both the outcomes and the methods of this ambition. To whom does it grant power? Who is left on the outside? What are its aims? Number three, ambition should be evaluated by both its methods and outcomes. And I want to elaborate. I know I've said that uh, a couple of times now. I want to elaborate on this uh, to, uh, to conclude. This leads to the other side of the dialectic. The reaction against all ambition by those who are rightly concerned with where these kinds of drivers lead uh, is also problematic. So if you have found yourself disturbed by the methods and outcomes of, of bad ambition, uh, the, the mature response, the wise response, isn't to jettison the whole thing. If you embrace the life of Jesus, the emptying out of Jesus on the cross, the relinquishing of power there, you must also embrace the power inherent in the resurrection and the return of Christ. This, this is power of a kind. A kingdom power unfamiliar to most of the world as we see it, but it is power nonetheless. We should realize Christ divesting himself of the powers of the age is at once an affirmation of the transcendent power of God over and through all space and time. As Christ was in the world, so should we be. As Christ dies to the powers of the world, so should we. All of our ambition can give us nothing more or less than a subservient position to the slaughtered Lamb of God, now enthroned. Ambition contextualized in that way is one that is not only healthy, but it's productive for the kingdom of God. Blessings, and we'll talk again next week. Mm -hmm.